Hello there, you're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We'll also be talking about the adaptation of the best-selling novel Where the Crawdads Sing, and we will give our thoughts on where we think it fails and succeeds as a film and as an adaptation. start out with some news and a lot of it is going to be based around warner brothers discovery and all the announcements that are coming out from them crazy stuff first of all they canceled the batman film the 90 million budgeted film that already had completed production it is not going to see the light of day in theaters or on a streaming service or ever until it gets leaked at some point but yeah, that's insane. Like, there's no comparison point for something like this. $90 million they spent already making this film, and now they're just going to tank it. It's amazing. Yeah, we need to get a movement going on Twitter that says, fuck you guys, put it on, uh, <laughs> put it somewhere so that we can watch it, or we won't watch anything else you, you make. I'm already yeah. on that train. I was on that train before they canceled it, but yeah, I was now I have a reason. <laughs> you're going to leverage the movement to get everyone to stop watching superhero stuff. That's but yeah, the goal. It's, it's weird. Uh, like apparently they enjoyed the nonstop release, the Snyder Cut hashtags. I would always come up when anything DC related happened because now this is going to follow them around like that. Release the Batgirl or finish Batgirl. It's just weird that they would go ahead and do it, but apparently the reasoning is they're going to uh, take a tax write-off on it, and apparently that was the better financial option than releasing it in theaters and then sending it to streaming. So that is insane. Um, yeah. In talking about the uh, future of... Well, first of all, they also did this to another movie, Scoob, Holiday Haunt. That was also like right at the finish line of post-production, and they axed that as well. Damn. So they'll also not be coming out, which is sad because it seemed seemed like a cute, fun time. It was them as kids and it's holiday themed. It was like a Christmas thing and they're trying to solve a mystery. It seems like it would have done really well, at least on streaming. I would have watched it. Yeah. So I don't know why they would have taken that out as well. But again, they're doing the same thing. They're just going to take a tax write off on it. So that is crazy. I'm hoping that they don't kill blue beetle it's supposed to be coming out next year starring sholo mariduena who stars in cobra kai that'd be really sad you know yeah. i also think it'd be really stupid because they could have a spider-man-esque character on their hands with him like just make it a coming age story you could have a lot of great banter with him in the scarab um a lot of good gags with that and it would be the first latino superhero starring in their own film Crazy that that hasn't happened yet, and they could be the ones to do that with Blue Beetle. Make that is it crazy. A nice cultural event, but 
it's you know up in the air right now since they just took down Batgirl, and that was originally supposed to be an HBO Max specific thing, and so is Blue Beetle. They initially like started making that to be an HBO Max thing. Then they were like, okay, we're gonna put it in theaters. But now, since Batgirl had the same trajectory and is now dead, hopefully Blue Beetle, which also has filmed, hopefully it will not get taken down as well. That'd be really sad. You know you're a bad production company when you're more profitable not showing the movies you made. <laughs> I know. it's, And I still Come don't on, understand bros. how exactly well, that works out financially. But yeah, They get a tax write-off because of all the production. They get like different tax write-offs for different things. And so they go through the process of making the movie. And so they get all these tax write-offs because of it. But then they would also end up spending all that money that they would be getting written off on post-production if they carried through. And so they're like, the money we'd make from HBO Max isn't going to outweigh the money we'd lose spending those tax write-offs we were already getting to finish post-production. So they don't want to, they don't want to carry through, I guess, which is dumb because like, it can't be that bad. You're still making money either way. You're just not making as much. And also you get to actually do your job and make movies. Since right, your exactly. job is a movie maker. You, your company makes movies. Yeah. Well, apparently they think that the, damage it would cause to the brand is so significant that they also don't want to put it out and they would rather just yeah minimize their losses through the tax write-offs and try is it and, bad like could you, you imagine know, they made it and they lost and they're like this is so awful what if we just pretend we get a tax write-off and just don't release it what if it's I that mean, horrible well, that was crazy. part of what they were doing it can't possibly be like unwatchable horrible no because movie. i can't imagine no movie being so bad that you just don't release it I know it's crazy. It has to be partially because they want to like do different things with DC and this no longer lines up with what they wanted to do because they had the whole Michael Keaton thing uh, yeah. coming back as Batman. And he was like in the flash whenever they do the reset of it, he was supposed to take over from Batfleck and be like the new Batman, but he'd be the like retired figure. So it'd be weird, but apparently they are going to shift away from that because if they're not releasing Batgirl, and they're redoing parts of Aquaman mm -hmm. to take out, apparently, a post-credit scene that Michael Keaton was in. They're putting Ben Affleck back in there. So they might be just having him serve as, like, this cool multiversal cameo in The Flash and not have him be the Batman moving forward. So partially to, I guess, clean up the timelines and whatnot, they're going to... Maybe they'll bring back Henry Cavill and just try and re-up re the Snyder-verse. Well, I don't know. That's what I'm... I'm curious about because Ben Affleck, of course, wanted to leave, but he's come back multiple times now. Henry Cavill wants to be in, but apparently there's just, I know he's very difficult to work with, apparently. Oh, really? So, yeah. So he's a bit of a diva as it is. Oh, interesting. So, uh, yeah, it'll he, I think, wants to come back. Fans obviously want him to come back, but whether or not Warner Brothers wants to deal with him coming back, we'll have to see. But speaking on that, they do have, they've announced at their, like a uh, shareholders meeting, they have a 10 year plan for DC and they are going to be centering Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman, the big three, of course, in that plan. So whether it's Henry Cavill or someone else, I mean, they want to have a Superman character like as the foundation for it. So they're going to have to do something with him. Uh, and then they're also saying, again, they want a 10 year plan. So something similar to what Kevin Feige did over at Marvel. So it's certain at this point that the flash will serve as a dc universe reset they're gonna have to come up with some way to explain yeah who is going to be our batman for this like new dc universe who's going to be the superman we'll see if they carry over like wonder woman and 
I'll come in. I'm sure they will. Um, but then that also leaves the like strange other worlds movies of like Pattinson, Robert Pattinson as Batman yeah, with Matt Reeves. And then of course, Joaquin Phoenix as Joker, which we also got confirmation of the release date of Joker 2, October 4th, 2024, and confirmation that Lady Gaga will indeed be Harley Quinn in that film. Crazy. Which is so funny. I'm legitimately excited for that film. It sounds like a riot. Just some weird, like, psychological <laughs> musical. It sounds fun. Um, but yeah, so those films will, I guess, just be standalones in their own universe, or are they going to try and fold in? like Robert Pattinson into the DCEU. Maybe they could do that. I don't know if like Matt Reeves and Robert Pattinson would be down for that, but I did think it was weird when they made the Robert Pattinson Batman. I'm like, why are you rebooting it when you still have Ben Affleck still coming in and you also have, it doesn't make sense. They just keep rebooting. They just keep rebooting and rebooting and rebooting. And I'm like, what are you doing? Right. It's just very, very odd. And so I guess we're just here for the ride. (laughs) <laughs> see what they do maybe the flash will just well the end of it will be the entire dc universe just explodes implodes everything's gone wiped out nothing stays and then they start over that would be very bold yeah so i mean it would be props to them for going that route i mean it's um, been like when did man of steel come out 2013 like 2013 it's been almost 10 years already and they have never gotten it right. They've Dude. been fucking up left and right for 10 years. It's about so, time they just wipe the slate and start over, try again. To put that Reboot in context, everything. to put that in context, the Flash CW show started premiering soon after they announced the Flash movie. And the Flash will finish its ninth and final season before the Flash comes out, the movie comes out. That's crazy. It is truly insane that that... The Flash with Ezra Miller, right? That's the one they announced? Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. Like, mind-boggling how it's... (laughs) Yeah, they already had... They could have had a 10-year plan that we'd be seeing the culmination of, and yet, instead, it's a total mess, and they're going to try and reset it and see what they can do. I Um, say just reset it and start over. Try again. I don't think they would do that, though. I think they're going to try and... Like, they're going to want to keep... Jason Momoa as Aquaman, he's good. Gal Gadot he is as pretty good. Wonder Woman, she's, I mean, she's done two movies so far. She does well in that role. So they're going to want to keep what they can, and then they're going to just find ways to fold in. Again, whether Ben Affleck wants to come back or not, whether they want to fold in Robert Benson or not, hopefully it's one of those two. I don't want to see another new Batman come up. And then hopefully they can do something with Henry Cavill and figure that out. Um, but yeah, they're going to just do some weird thing where they keep what they like and what they can work with, and then they'll cut out what they can't and so again if like henry cavill just isn't gonna work out then they'll try and find another superman but yeah the other final are they still trying to do the black superman movie i don't believe so anymore oh wow um rest of the other thing with hbo max and discovery plus they've announced that they are going to be merging these two streaming services in 2023 It'll be an entirely new one. And I think this is so unbelievably stupid. I just think it's so dumb. They built up HBO Max. It is undeniably the best streaming service in terms of the catalog that they have and in terms of original shows coming out. It's insane that they would throw away whatever goodwill they've built up over the past few years. Also throw away the HBO name because, again, I mean, that is just associated with quality. Why would you 
change that and instead make it some new streaming service. I don't know what the name is going to be for it, but why not just keep it HBO Max? Just throw Discovery Plus on there as a little hub and then you're good. Yeah, like but you- they, yeah, but that's part of the merger is like Discovery Plus was probably like, you can buy us out, but we don't want to be part of HBO Max. We want it to be one new thing. Maybe like saving face. They're like, we're big enough to where we can combine our two things and have to start over. We don't want to be absorbed by you. We're too big to be absorbed, but we can merge. Except they're not. All they're Discovery not. Plus is is just stupid reality TV show fluff. They got Property Brothers, 90 Day Fiance. Did you see that? That of their like slideshow they had, their PowerPoint? They had a slide of all their major universes and all their major franchises. So you have like Game of Thrones on there all the DC stuff you have Harry Potter and then mm-hmm. they had 90 day fiance universe, <laughs> the great franchise of 90 day fiance. It's just so dumb. Yeah. That's going to be stupid. I just, one day all of the streaming services will all be combined and we're just going to be circling back around to the monopoly cable, that cable was cable TV plus. Cable <laughs> TV plus. But honestly, at this point it's like, just do it. Like that seems to be the inevitable yeah. end point. So let's just speed it everybody up pl- everybody pays 60 bucks a month and you get access to everything that's ever been created ever yeah it's the way to go it's the way to do it that's honestly i mean that's not that's not bad i would pay 60 bucks a month to be able to access any programming ever made for sure why not mm-hmm. anyway we can move on to our box office breakdown for july 29th to the 31st start coming in first without a doubt dc league of super pets 23 million right out the gates. Impressive. Not really. That was, was pretty much what we called it would be in between that 20 to 25 mil range. Yep. Uh, it's on par with like other animated releases that have come out recently, like the bad guys and whatnot. Um, but given the star power attached, Kevin Hart, the rock and it being a DC thing, you think it would open higher, but who knows? Maybe you'll have good legs uh, coming in second. Nope. With 18 million with a 58% drop. So, good I mean, Jordan Peele is now at blockbuster level since he's having blockbuster level drops in the second weekend. But yes, all in whole. After that is Thor: Love and Thunder with 13 million. That brings its domestic total to 300. Happy about that, Ryan? Could be happier. Could be higher. <laughs> but you know, it, it is doing what it's doing, so it's serviceable. Minions: The Rise of Gru with 10.8 million, with 320 million domestic. Are you happy about that? Yeah, I'm doing all right. I feel like it also could be a bit higher, but, you know, still holding on. I mean, it's doing pretty good. Minions of Rise of Gru came out before Thor, so. That is true. Holding out holding out a lot better. After that, back in the top five, Top Gun Maverick with 8.2 million, bringing its domestic total to $650 million. Yeah, that is insane. It is crazy. It's again, it's going to try and reach 700 mil. We'll see. At some point, they're going to, I think, come back into like the premium uh, theater formats, IMAX and all that, and try and push it over the edge. So expect that re-release or re-issue coming soon. Uh, but after Top Gun Maverick, we have Where the Crawdads Sing with 7.5 million. And then Elvis with 5.8 million. The Black Phone, 2.5 million. Jurassic World Dominion two million. It has now reached three hundred sixty nine million domestically, meaning it has passed the Batman. The Batman. Mm-hmm. So there you go, surpassed by one of your other films on your roster. Yes, sir. And finally, Vengeance rounding out the top ten 
with 1.75 million. All go. right. And now we can do our box office predictions for the weekend of August 5th to the 7th. The biggest movie coming out this weekend is the Brad Pitt action flick Bullet Train, which is also on my roster for the box office draft. It's another one. It's coming out. What do you think it's going to make, Ryan? Go ahead, tear down my expectations. <laughs> See if you can try. Uh, well, I will try. I think it'll get thirty-four million for this weekend. I think it'll get fifty. I don't think it'll get that, but I'm gonna blow up my expectations <laughs> so that when I'm disappointed, I'll crash hard. <laughs> Go for it. So yeah, you're saying fifty mil. I'll say thirty-four, thirty-five mil. We'll see what it does. Uh, other films coming out. Easter Sunday, which is a Joe Coy film. Why is it coming out in August, you ask? No one has any clue. Uh, Going to be sub <laughs> 10 million for sure. I agree. And Alexa Bodies already saw it. She went and saw it yesterday oh. with her mom. Did she like it? Uh, she said it was all right. Dang. Not, <laughs> doesn't bode well for Easter Sunday. Nope. <laughs> uh, we also have Bodies, 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 which is an A24 film. Uh, it was like a murder mystery riff on the mafia game where werewolf uh, and Pete one of those losers, mm-hmm. but werewolf instead of mafia. Exactly. And then it's starring Amanda Steinberg, Stenberg and Pete Davidson, who recently just broke up with Kim Kardashian, apparently. Damn. So, yeah. He right broke up with her. That's crazy. I have no clue who broke up with who. I just heard that that had happened, that they're yeah. split. So. There you go. Go support him with his appearance in, in this indie film. Um, but that's been really well received. It's been like I'm over 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm excited for it too. I'm also excited. We got some streaming stuff, a whole bunch of stuff coming out. Prey, which is the Predator movie, coming out on Hulu. It should have been released in theaters because, I mean, it's an action film. It seems like it yeah. would do really well on the big screen. And it's getting... Like Hulu's the worst one for it to premiere on. What do you mean? I feel like Hulu's not known for its movies. I feel like it's more of a TV streaming service. It's not like HBO Max or something. I think that's true, which is probably why, I don't know, they wanted to put it there to boost it. Who knows? But they should have put it in theaters and then put it to Hulu afterwards because it's yeah, getting amazing reviews. So really? It could have done quite well. Yeah. I might check it out then. On Rotten Tomatoes. 13 Lives hitting Amazon. They slash them hitting Peacock. Mm. And Luck, the animated film, that's the return of John Lasseter at Apple TV Plus. So there you go. That's John Lasseter? Know. Yeah. That's not good. Right? Yikes. Mm-hmm. So there Wouldn't you go. Wouldn't it suck if it was amazing? I hear it's not good. So you can Thank rest God that he doesn't have another success on his hands. Yeah, fuck that guy. Mm-hmm. Now we can move on to our main topic. We're going to be discussing the book and then the movie where the crawdads sing. And we're also going to be talking about what it's like to adapt a book into a movie and what makes a successful book adaptation and a not successful book adaptation. So let's give some background on the book and its author. It Where the crawdads sing was on the New York Times bestsellers list for three years. Yes. And I have something to say as an aside here. Yeah, go ahead. I was looking at the bestsellers list to like verify all that. And then I saw that. This person, Colleen Hoover, or Colleen Hoover, this author has five books on the bestsellers list, and that's out of 15. They put up 15, and she has five of them on there, and I've never heard of her before. Have you heard of 
Colleen Hoover? I have definitely heard of Colleen Hoover, but I couldn't name a single one of her books. That's what I'm saying. It's I was stunned. I was like, who is one this person them, that's just cleaning up? One of them got turned into something. I think it ends with us. Maybe got adapted at some point. Something like that. I, I've definitely heard of her and I've definitely heard of her books. Yeah. I think maybe Alexa's seen them on like book talk or something. Book talk? Book TikTok. Book talk. Okay. Sorry. Gotcha. I was thinking T-A-L-K talk. <laughs> Booktube is what I'm familiar with. Ah. I haven't looked at Booktube in forever. YouTube has evolved into TikTok now. There's no more YouTube stars, only TikTok stars. Well, that's not true, but yeah, apparently it is driving a lot it's... of major traction on TikTok, I guess. Oh, yeah. Five books are hitting the bestsellers list. That's insane. It's crazy. We'll see if there's any adaptations of those that will come out in the next few years. Yep. Weather Crawdad Singh has 15 million copies sold to date. That's very impressive because it is the first novel by Delia Owens. Of course, she's written some memoirs in the past about her time as a conservationist in Africa, where she w- worked there for two whole decades. And she had to abruptly flee Africa because she started to become wanted in Zambia for questioning regarding the murder of a suspected poacher in 1995, which was a part of a like ABC news special that they aired. And then so once that happened, she was wanted for questioning. And then so they fled the country, her and her family. Her husband, Mark Owens, was allegedly the commander of a group of game scouts that would capture, beat, and kill poachers. And all of this comes from like two exposés written by Jeffrey Goldberg. He's published an article about it way back in 2010, so far before she ever became this big author. And then after, of course, she released that book, he continued to put out the word about this darker past that she has and it's pretty interesting that it it matches quite well with the plot of where the crawdad sings now we understand where the whole murder murder mystery part comes from um and she may have self-reported in it since you know whatever happens at the ending which by the way yeah we'll get into all these spoilers when we talk about the book and movie so if you haven't read it if you're one of the people that haven't bought in the book uh, and giving it a read, go ahead and do so, and then go watch the movie if you are so inclined. But let's jump into our thoughts on the book. Dylan, you were able to finish it, yeah? I did. I did finish Twice. it. So we watched, or well, so we watched it after we read it. Although Dylan, you didn't read the like final portion with the trial yeah, no. stuff. Yeah. Um. So yeah, what are your thoughts on the book? Just in general, there were a lot of ups and downs with it. The dialogue was particularly the weakest part. Agreed. I didn't think anything the characters said sounded like real people. And it got to such an extreme that the black characters were written, their dialogue was written so poorly that it teetered on offensive, if not racist at points. Mm -hmm. Trying to capture the North Carolina coastline accent for a black individual just came off very stereotypy, which you know, is not the best thing when you're reading a book that came out in the last 10 years, you know, you shouldn't shouldn't be reading that in in a modern book, but putting the dialogue aside and focusing on the actual story aspect of it, I feel like parts of it worked and parts of it didn't. I don't like the lesson at the end of it and we'll get there 
I think it's a bad lesson to try to impart. I think it doesn't work on any level. And I feel like it's a very dark ending because of it. But I feel like the small lessons that she, the character Kaya is learning throughout the story about dealing with loneliness and being a survivor. I think it works pretty well. Like the whole setup of her having a family and having the family one by one leave until she's alone. And then her going through the ups and downs of her relationships that she's also left behind alone again. And then having other people in her lives that come and go. And like, then you get to that latter half of the second part of the book where she finally gets to deal with that trauma that she's experienced before the things with Chase happen and we'll get there. And I, I think that whole part where she learns about herself and as, as well as she's able to accept the trauma that happened to her, I feel like that works particularly well in terms of her being able to move on from her trauma. I think the scene where she looks at her mother's paintings is very effective. I just, I don't know. A, the dialogue is, is like there's parts where the characters go to like have a talk about something that happened in the past and like apologize to each other. And it's very cut and dry. It's very much like, like, like writing out an apology. It's like how you want an apology to go in your head when someone's coming back to apologize to you. You're like, Oh, I hope they say exactly these words when they apologize to me. And then the characters in the book actually say that to each other. I'm like, nobody actually, when they're apologizing, nobody says what you want them to say. Like, that's just not how it works. They say how they feel, and it's often different from what you want them to say. Unless you find the perfect person, sure, maybe. But for the most part, there's not a lot of clean, cut and dry apologies and forgiveness like what happens in the book. And that makes it feel a little inauthentic, which kind of sucks. There's like multiple moments of that throughout the story. But overall... I thought the idea of the care, like the journey the character goes through as a person who grows up in the marsh alone and struggles to survive and then learns how to do it and then is able to come to terms with her loneliness and then is able to accept people back into her lives. I think that journey works. I don't like the murder mystery and I don't like the lesson that comes with the murder mystery. And I don't like the tense, the, the, the tension that they try to create by weaving the murder mystery in between the story of everything else because it feels very oddly paced and I just wish they cut out the murder mystery altogether and cut out that final lesson. And we'll, we'll get there when we spoil the murder mystery, but right. Ryan, your thoughts on the book. So, yeah, I agree with you about the dialogue definitely not coming off really well. It, it just felt very simple and plain a lot of times. Um, and then other times it tried to get like very flowery and poetic, but it mm-hmm. wasn't done well. I thought like for me, I'm fine with, especially in books, if it doesn't sound like a authentic dialogue that people would actually say, I'm fine with that. As long it as it's harder to capture that in books than in right. movies, because in movies, people are actually saying it. exactly. Yes. Um, but yeah, in books, especially I'm not too caught up on that because as long mm-hmm. as it's sounding beautiful or like reads beautifully on the page, then I'm completely fine with it being like stuff. No one would actually say like a lot of what John green does in his books is similar to that. And other books as well that I tend to like, um, they'll throw out that idea of like authenticity and try and emphasize it just sounding beautiful and conveying like really poignant or strong impactful messages um or just like getting that strong feeling out of you um so that to me 
would have worked had it hit that level, but I I don't think it mm-hmm. did whenever, you know, she shot for that. So that was bad. The other thing was, especially with the murder mystery thing, I'm fine with that being woven in and out of it because, again, they're trying to build up that tension, give you this mystery so you're, like, trying to figure things out. I think the stuff with the two detectives it was just very cliche oh my god it so dude! Trite. it was so campy yeah it was like it was like the 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 most cartoonish detectives you could ever write in exactly. a book i was like what is happening so that part it, was, it just always instantly took me out of it anytime they were like doing these investigation things and they're uh just it it made no sense well i mean it made sense but it was just it didn't make sense why you as a writer at this point in time would choose to write basically just cliches as these characters. Like we could have just skipped over mm-hmm. that and they did in the movie, which I think is one of the best changes they make is yeah. they spend no time having these detectives like try and work out some aspects of it. Yeah. They I just agree. only give us that information in the trial. So I also yeah, don't was- like because we spend so much time with them and because they're doing their investigation, it seems like they're doing a good job. You're like, these detectives must be smart people and you get to the trial and you're like oh i guess you kind of are just an idiot the whole (laughs) time and you're really working on almost no information here but it seems like you're working on a lot when really you aren't Mm -hmm. so like in the movie they cut out most of that investigation stuff and they show the bare bones of it and get to those plot points which i do think works better because then when you get to that realization of like oh these detectives are just stupid and didn't do all their work here clearly it, it it's more effective it works right because there were also things and it was a i don't know like maybe a strange oversight with the book but by the time we got to the point where like chase and uh kaya were together it seemed mm-hmm. like that was an open secret in the town like everyone knew he was also wearing the necklace that again people would have assumed she also guess- wasn't as hidden as she was in the book i felt like she was very much more present in the community in the movie like in the scene where they're all playing on the beach and she's there She's just sitting next to them. Like she's not hiding in any way. I saw it and I was like, I was like, what? She's just sitting next. She's just hanging out with them like three feet away doing her own thing. That's not hidden in the slightest. This is not the shy character that the book is trying to portray at at all. Exactly. That was right after she gets left again by the Tate this time. And so she once again is like, wow, everyone will leave me. So I'm just going to be lonely from now on. And then she's just sitting on the beach happy next to like random people in the book she was constantly hiding at that point so it was mm-hmm. weird i guess they just had to like give a shortcut to chase yeah. and her meeting i guess we're but, kind of leaning into spoilers now by the way so if you have not read the book or seen the movie go do that and then come back because we're getting into those spoilers now but yeah um but yeah i think with that was another thing that felt weird and just rang hollow to me was the fact that the detectives seemed like they didn't know that kaya would obviously be if he's found dead somewhere in the marsh and you knew of this connection that he had with Kaya, which apparently, again, it seemed to be obvious since he's going around telling all his friends, um, his family knew at one point. So it seemed weird that it took so long for them to arrive at that point of, oh, let's try and get her and bring her in for questioning. It just felt like it was a, it was a convenience that they had to put in in order to build up the murder, the murder mystery in the book that mm-hmm. didn't, really seem all that interesting because we also knew at a certain point that she was going to get taken in um so i wish they would have gotten to that much sooner and again like they did in the movie just cut down on the detective stuff uh yeah the strong point i think for the book was 
all of the writing that was related to nature. Obviously, mm-hmm. given her background, Delia Owens excelled at that. So a lot of that was beautiful, like reading just the descriptions of the swamp and the marsh and the creatures. That was really nice. Um, so I think I think that was its strongest element. I also think in terms of character, although I think she's pretty flat in other ways, um, Kaya, I do think the loneliness was really well realized. Like the way that she would describe all that um, and showcase like how she's feeling these things. And it's obviously very believable that she would feel these things since we get to see all her family leave her and then take leave her. And then she's just left alone with that like bitter, hollow feeling inside of herself. I think that worked quite well. Um, again, I don't think it's realistic that every single sibling would leave without taking her, especially Jody. I just, there's just no way that would happen to me, I think. Like someone would have mm-hmm. taken her. But if we're going to go ahead and let that slide, I think how they describe all her loneliness and how she's trying to survive on her own, which again, a little stretching it a bit that she would be able to survive all that at 10. But I do yeah. think that was another one of the stronger points in the in the book. I also did like the trial stuff just because I do like courtroom stuff a lot and just getting to yeah. see I just felt like it was out. very like like cliche, hammy, cartoonish sort of trial. It very, was. I feel like it was very cut and dry, simple stuff. And it was also like we've been around. I do enjoy reading anything legal and any, anything logical where they're like throwing like logic at one another, trying to make an argument. I enjoy that and stuff. But I feel like we had watched the entire investigation in depth the whole time that there were no any twists and turns in the legal battle per se. Because we knew what was going to come up and what the arguments would kind of be like. Also, I'd already seen the movie by the time I got to this part. True. But overall, uh, as far as legal scenes go, it still wasn't my favorite. Like, I can get hooked on anything in a courtroom because I think it's just so interesting. But this was one of the ones that I felt was still a little lackluster. Right. Yeah. Again, there was nothing, no like amazing bombshells or stunning like legal arguments that are getting presented there. But yeah, for what it was, I. I still enjoyed that part. Um, okay, and then the other thing was, like, at times the romance here and there, I just, I don't know, didn't entirely buy into it. Like, especially with Chase and Kaya, I I can maybe see why, again, Kaya's, like, a lonely person and Chase is coming mm-hmm. along, and so forming that connection with someone that seems interested in you, okay, I can sort of buy into that. I mm-hmm. just don't know why... Like Chase I can... would be putting in so because again it seemed like again people knew that he was going around in the swamp but he was also getting married to this other girl and it seemed like he was doing all this like he knew he was marrying that other girl wanted to do that and was just going in with his marsh to like sleep with Kaya and take advantage of her basically um, and he would be talking about the things like marriage and all that just to yeah. further his goals with that um, but then he's always wearing the shell, and again, I mean, he's it's so the much. The shell time is one of my least favorite parts of this whole book. Yeah, we'll get to that. But yeah, he's wearing the shell, and again, walking around like in the town with that. At some point, she goes into the town and like goes up to him and talks with him, and then he says, "Oh, hey guys, this is Kaya. Kaya, this is blah blah blah," and then like leaves with his fiance on his arm. But again, it seemed weird that. Like, was everyone okay with him, like, going off all these times into the marsh? Like, they certainly had to know something was going on there. So did his fiance know? 
how does she feel about that? Like, I don't know. That part I felt like I, I felt like there was definitely short term appeal was well done. Like why Kai would want to first start dating him and why she'd be interested because she was heartbroken by Tate and she was like needed to recover and the she, the interest that she was being shown was certainly appealing so i get that but then she doesn't really go into what that long-term appeal why they would date for like in the book it's like a year isn't it like they date yeah. for a long long time and i'm like what what is so appealing about chase that kaya would want to stay for a long time and i guess the the lesson you're supposed to learn is that it was an abusive relationship even from the beginning that like he is only in it, interested for sex and that he uses his abusive charms and and like the the toxic masculinity logic to get her to stay but they don't really show that on a day-to-day basis he just kind of seems like a normal dude who really wants to have sex and then he has sex and then keeps having sex even though it's not very good for kaya and she doesn't know how to broach the topic and then at some point it just doesn't work out because she finds out he's engaged and it's like okay was he was he an asshole or did he actually care about her like the answer to that is never actually given right like Which, he's an asshole, of course, but did he actually care about her? Yeah. Was there any level of like actually wanting to be with her long term or wanting to like actually live a life where oh, he could be with yeah. Marshall, but he isn't because he has to like run the auto shop store and doesn't want to get judged or ostracized by his community or whatnot. Like, mm-hmm. We never really get that understanding. And as it's presented, again, it seems like it's more of the idea of, oh, he was just using her and controlling her and having this like person he can go out to and just have sex with and then leave and go back to his normal life um and if they wanted to like really hammer that home that's fine it's just we didn't really get confirmation on that and so we're left with this weird ambiguity of it but it's not like an interesting sort of ambiguity it's just a sort of well now he feels unbelievable and inauthentic because i don't know for an entire year going out and doing that um it just i don't know I can't imagine that being like a thing again, the short term part of it. Sure. Like he's chase is on the chase. And then when he finally is able to sleep with her, he still stays for an entire year. And again, spends like a lot of time going into the marsh. I thought it was going to be like, they go to Atlanta and then he has sex with her. And then maybe they have sex a couple more times. And then she like, then I thought he was just going to ditch. And like, that was going to be the end of the relationship. I didn't think she was going to be the one that broke it off. Cause that doesn't make sense to me. I guess I suppose like there's a part of him where at least he'll always have a side piece in the marsh that he can go and tap whenever he wants, I suppose. Maybe. To put it in layman's terms, but at the same time, it's, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's like, it's like, I don't imagine him putting in that much F. Well, like you watch things like Goodfellas and like they have their, side chicks that they take they you know they take them out and they buy them apartments and like they take an interest in their lives but then they always come home to the wife i guess you could make the argument that that's like what he's he's trying to be like he has just a second woman that he wants to be with but then they don't show him actually caring like he doesn't actually do anything that seems caring other than spending time with her doing what she wants to do and i'm like he doesn't do anything nice for her he doesn't do anything that would make her want to like him other than give her attention Right. I don't know. I feel like it's just like it's on the cusp of making sense, but doesn't quite grab it. Doesn't quite solidify it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, there's I wish. Yeah, there would have been a bit more of that substance there for us to really know. Um, yeah. 
because yeah she doesn't like whenever they were hanging out like i i don't think she smiled or laughed once in the book so again it's like why other than just that feeling of like some company being there why yeah there's like parts of the book where she's like where she's like oh he did another thing i didn't like but at least he's here i guess that also ties into the abusive relationship of like you don't actually like him but at least he's present when everyone else has left like you right. you are okay with it because he's what like again that lesson is something that i like with the character but i feel like there need to be more of a connection in the beginning to solidify the lack of a connection by the end and like mm-hmm. the lesson that is is learned by that but like i felt like they just hung out and he played the harmonica and she was like i guess he's okay and then they did stuff and then she was like i guess i don't want to do stuff and then they went and just hung out but it never felt like they really like liked each other right as a couple and i'm like if they had liked each other in the beginning or if at the very least she had liked him for some reason like if he had been more charming it would have made the gut punch of him being abusive more powerful and make more sense right it would also explain why she stayed so long agreed agreed uh so let's talk about the twist since you uh did not <sighs> enjoy it or at least the implications of it um just first and foremost i think the whole shell thing like as a plot device, her dumb. taking the shell is dumb. Because again, in what world would you do that? If you were this hey. calculated <laughs> to plan out, and again, they lay it out in the book, which I thought was funny. They were like laying out, he was like, see, this, this, and this, it doesn't line up. There's just no way she did it. And I was like, wow, you're right. There's no way, but she definitely did it because you want to have a twist. Um, mm-hmm. And I wanted to see like, okay, let's flashback and see her planning it out and being very meticulous about this. We never got that, which I was sad about. Um, but yeah, so they set it up as like, this is nearly impossible. But then she did it. But she takes the shell after doing all of that and succeeding in that mission. She's like, you know, what? I'm going to take a shell anyway. And then hold on to it. Not get rid of it, but hold on to it. I could maybe understand if she takes it away from like, him. So it's like, you don't get to have this piece of me anymore. But why would you keep it for all that time when it's the only incriminating evidence? What sucks about the red shell is that in another version of this story where Chase actually does die by accident, that red shell acts as a red herring of like whoever has the shell is a killer but then the plot twist is that he actually did die by accident like that is what the red shell would serve as a purpose for but in this story it is a red herring that turns out to be not a red herring and so it becomes useless it's just it is a plot device that shows that she is the killer and delia owens is like struggling to connect why a chase would always be wearing it why would he be wearing his side pieces necklace all the time in front of his wife and his parents? But he like that doesn't make sense. And they all know it's from her. Like it's not like it's a secret that he's keeping really well hidden. They yeah. all know. They that said it's at from some point Gaia. in the movie, at least. I don't know if it was carried over, but they mm-hmm. said like she knew the mom knew that the show was from the Marsh Girl and that yeah. he had something with the Marsh Girl, but. Remember, it was her when she found out that he was engaged that broke it off. So that yeah. means when he got engaged, he was still with Kaya. And people still knew that he was with Kaya. And he was wearing that shell when he proposed, probably. Yeah. Again, it's it just, just wild. I just didn't and know then, the extent to that. And then also, why would she take it? if she? It seemed like she just never even liked him in the first place, but stayed with him out of convenience. Why would she take the shell? What meaning does it have to her? right yeah because her taking back her power like her her personal touch to him or something why would you spend so long planning this meticulous murder and then 
if he, she hadn't taken that shell, they would have looked at it and they would have said, oh, this is probably an accident. Exactly, yeah. Like, it's the one thing that ties you to the crime is the fact that you took that piece of evidence. Like, mm-hmm. bruh. And then, also, the other why thing... would she cover up his tracks? Like, I give, I get covering up your own tracks, but why would she cover up Chase's tracks as well? Right, and that was the other that thing... that doesn't make it look like an accident. That I wanted to know was... Like, some of the things that they brought up in the trial, like, oh, the tide came up and could have washed away the tracks. I wanted to know, okay, so did she cover the tracks when she was there? And then that would bring up the question of why cover his, since you could have just left that. Or was she actually, like, looking at the tides and seeing that and being like, oh, okay, maybe those will come up yeah. and wash all away these, the tracks. All of these plot problems are the first reason I don't like the entire murder mystery subplot. Mm-hmm. Is because there's too many plot holes that don't get answered, too many questions being raised that don't get answered. And it detracts from the themes that she's trying to convey with Kaya's loneliness and her trauma. I feel like it takes away from those a lot. The other reason I don't like the entire trial and murder subplot is the twist that it is actually Kaya means that the lesson, like they put it very well in the movie, I think, when, when, because it's not in the book, when she says, uh, in order for the predator to survive, sometimes they must kill the prey. I'm like, why is that the lesson? That seems like a horrible lesson to be imparting on people. Like, kill your abusers because they've got it coming. I feel like that is, like, the wrong lesson to impart on people. Like, self-defense is different than first-degree murder. Right, exactly. If Um, if, If the plot twist had been, like, they had gone to this fire tower and she was trying to finally end it, through her own way and then he accidentally got killed and it was like manslaughter sure you can get away with it but this is planned out first degree murder which ties back into the poacher problem of <laughs> exactly the the predator sometimes must be killed so that the prey can survive justifying justifiable first degree homicide is is what the the lesson the major lesson is at the end of that murder trial and i'm Which, like yeah. what yeah, and I think, so I do that theme that she touches on as well of, like, in nature, there is no morality. There's just the simple math of, like, trying yeah. to survive. Like, I think she's exploring that theme and puts in certain eloquent ways of, like, just these are the instincts, the instincts of survival that have been passed down, and they're embedded in our genes, and they will come out when they need to, like, when we need to survive. Um, like, I thought that stuff was cool, and bringing up the motifs of, like, the praying mantis is a very common one everyone knows, but I also liked that she included the fireflies one mm-hmm. where they'll send out false signals to attract uh, males and then eat them. Yeah. Which, I don't know again, exactly. Cause that was like going into the thing of like, Oh, sometimes like females will utilize these things in order to take down the um, like ones that would just come in and use or take advantage of the uh, female members of the species. Um, I don't know exactly why like the fireflies, would be doing that like attracting the random males and then eating them um but again that that was all going towards the point of like sometimes this is just what needs to happen to survive it's just simple math that's how it goes which can be good in like the survival situations where and they try to frame it in that way of like i'll never be safe if he's around and i like yeah i understand that to a point but as you said like that was just a straight up calculated like first degree murder and even though it's awful that 
like he probably would get away with doing what he did and the attempted rape. Mm-hmm. It's awful that that's the case, but you also just don't get to go. Yeah, for there is Ill. no justifiable first degree murder. There is no justifiable first degree murder. None. And we can understand again the reason, like the passion and the emotional instinct and whatnot to want that. I think is fair game to explore because certainly that's like a very human passion of like wanting to certainly get rid of someone that's a threat to you, but then also to like reclaim things and then make sure that you aren't abused any further. The sense of revenge, all that stuff. I think you can explore that. But then, as you said, yeah, leaving off on the message, which I don't know if they're like saying this is okay, but the ending just was, well, that, oh, she got away with it. And then the, sometimes you, the implication is that, is that she, the only reason she flourished for the rest of her life is because he was dead. And thank God he was dead. And then when Tate finds out that she's the one that killed her, he was like, it's better to leave well enough alone and just hid the evidence. Right. Which that, I was also, so say you do want to go and commit the first degree murder sure you can do that i suppose but at least bear the consequences of doing that like if you want to go ahead and go for that you gotta yeah. i think take the consequences she with also it. like she was gung-ho of like i will not admit any guilt because i did nothing and and so it, it leads you to think oh she's innocent she has to be innocent someone else killed him but like right. So she isn't honest. She's a murderer and now a hardcore liar. Well, and the thing, the thing with, that I also thought rang hollow in the film or in the book rather was her describing like this fear of getting killed, like getting executed. Yeah, and which I don't know. That seemed strange to me, considering like if you were going to do this plan, you knew it could have gone wrong in a million different ways. Like something could have gone wrong on the fire tower. It could have been mm-hmm. her that ended up dead. So, like, at that point, she already had accepted some measure of, like, this could be it. I'm risking my life in order to do this thing. And then now she's jailed and she's all depressed and sad. But again, she's, like, committing to the idea that she didn't do it. I'm guessing because she wants to be free at some point. But even in the movie, I think they say, like, oh, I'm getting out of here one way or the other. Death being the other. But in the book, they kept emphasizing the idea that she just, for whatever reason, is so like terrified and scared of the idea of being executed and it felt like that just came out of nowhere it seems like especially with the whole like survival instincts and nature and that sort of stuff it seems like she would have been more okay with the idea of like yeah if i go that's fine it's better than being like stuck in prison forever like i feel Mm -hmm. like she would have preferred that of just like going out that way rather than being stuck in prison and not being able to be with the marsh for the rest of her life Um, so that always seemed like an odd thing and yep. then the other thing that was weird, again, like if you wanted to have it where she rebels against like the predator and she's able to take him out mm-hmm. and wins, okay. And then say she still doesn't want to be put in prison or executed. Okay, that's fine. That's part of her survival instinct maybe. But the thing that they had in the book at the end was them describing like all the members of the town and how they were shocked and abhorred at her getting off and being like oh i can't believe it she was a murderer we all know we all know and then they frame it in a way where like those townspeople are bad people like they're still buying into their prejudices of the harsh girl as they do that and i'm like but they were right why are you doing that (laughs) she she did kill him and they were right to suspect that she probably killed him yeah and then you frame as like oh for the rest of the like 50 years or 40 years that she lived out her life there's always that tinge of the people that would see her as the killer, but she was. And then also with Tate, I don't know, like that's kind of messed up as well to not tell Tate 
and live out your entire life with him and then leave behind the evidence that you know he's going to find of you actually being the killer. Like, yeah. I don't know. That seems, uh, even, again, say the killing's accused and we all are like, okay, whatever. We can justify taking out your predator. Wouldn't you still want to know, though? Like, keeping that information hidden, I mean, with your partner for the rest of your life, that still seems kind of messed up to do to them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the whole thing is very far-fetched as a murder plot goes. We should maybe, again, because it is, I don't know, it shouldn't be a hot take, I think, to be like, guys, you can't Murder's take, bad. You can't do things on your own. You can't, like, quote-unquote, seize justice on your own. There is no justifiable first-degree homicide. Let's come back and do an actual thing to show where we point out. Because, again, the... I can understand, like, certainly the reactions to the end of the film may be like, oh, this is just fighter. Oh, good for her. <laughs> go queen, girl boss, go take him down. <laughs> and again, there should absolutely be justice that is given out to abusers and to rapists and attempted rapists for sure. Yeah, but vigilante but, justice is not the lesson. Exactly. That shouldn't be the thing where, yeah, like... And then she has no consequences for her actions. That's the problem. It's not even that she does the vigilante action. It's that she suffers no consequences. Right. And then the lesson is you can get away with it too. Yeah, exactly. So again, the instinct should, of like, oh, I'd want to do it yeah. and want to get away with it. Sure. But you should be like, we shouldn't be putting out the idea of like, take things into your own hands, which again, I can understand like the mistrust in the system. She even says herself, I think in the book and the film, like, oh, I don't want to explain this to a bunch of men. And you and I are men, so we obviously don't have that same sort of like feelings as women would of just not being believed or certainly it being a horrible thing to come out with, like this trauma you've experienced and then not even being believed or then having to relive it in trying to bring that justice to light or trying to bring, uh -huh. you know, the, the crimes to light and get justice for it. But that still, I don't think, means take it into your own hands. And at the end of the day, like in the trial, all of that came out anyway the fact that like those things happened to her but then she was put on trial as like a criminal as a murderer instead of coming into a police station as the victim she was and trying to get justice in a certain way so that i think can also be it's a rough situation because we do know of a lot of real life scenarios where the system doesn't help women aren't believed things don't actually get solved or the criminals who were the abusers and were the criminals they didn't actually have any justice brought to them but still don't think that means to buck the system entirely and try to take matters into your own hands and then when you do do that and you execute your own form of justice you mm -hmm. still have to be held accountable within the greater system of justice which is that you just can't kill people like plan and execute murders of people regardless of what they have done to you you just yeah. can't do that no. Bad. Bitty bad. So, yeah. uh, the last thing I want to talk about with the book for me is that uh, when I first watched the movie, I was actually upset that they didn't include any bits of her like reciting poetry because I thought that worked really well in the book. Then I finished the book <laughs> and I found out that the, the poet that she's been quoting the whole time is not a real poet. It's just Kaya. And I thought that was the dumbest twist. <laughs> That they've ever included. So she's just she's just motoring around the marsh quoting her own poems. Like how fucking yeah. stupid. Like the whole time weird. I'm reading these, hey, I'm reading the poems, I'm thinking, you know, they're not great, but it's interesting that 
Delia Owens found this, you know, underground poet and like included her poems and how they how like nice they relate to the to the story that's going on. And then it turns out she's actually just a character and all the poems are fake and only in the book. And I'm like, this is dumb as fuck. This is just <laughs> fucking, fucking, fucking stupid. I agree. Yeah, it was one of those weird things where it could have just been left out or it could have just been an actual like I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad they left it out in the movie now. But the way that yeah, it just seemed to add another like amazing, unbelievable quality to Kaya, which pushed the limits of believability. Like she's a master artist who gets published. She's a poetry aficionado apparently as well, like an well, amazing poet. Well, to the credit of the book, to the credit of the book She's published only locally, and even Tate admits that he didn't think the poems were that good, but that she defended them because, of course, she wrote them. But to to the credit of the book, they aren't considered great poems by Tate, so right. they aren't technically the best. And also, when you read them, they're not good, so that helps in in that impression. Sure, they're amateur hour, you know. Yeah, but still, it was like I don't know if we needed that <laughs> that twist to show up. Yeah. Uh, okay, so good little hunting vibe of her just like sitting around reading books and becoming like a super genius. I know that was weird. Just too. from reading, yeah, and she was like able to read all these textbooks and whatnot and get like extremely intelligent and smart, and then also lost her accent and started speaking. She like, unlocked the eleventh percent of her brain. Apparently, <sighs> became yeah. a super genius. She was amazing. All right, let's talk about the movie real quick. So, yeah, all the, like, basic story beats are the same, so we won't necessarily cover that stuff. Yeah. One thing I wanted to point out is the accents Ooh, were weak. You yeah. could hardly even tell at times that they're supposed to be in the marsh and supposed to be in the south. It was very strange. Yeah. Uh, so what aspects about the movie? We both saw it together. You face-palmed at least three or four times. I was I was sinking into my chair. If you yep, looked you over that. me more times, I was like trying not to look at it. It was one of the worst movies I've seen in theaters, probably since House of Gucci. And <laughs> just through and through, really, really, really poorly done, really poorly adapted, didn't make any sense, laughable. Couldn't take it seriously. Cheesy, way too cheesy at certain parts and not heartfelt enough when it was supposed to be. Dialogue was carried over almost word for word in some scenes from the book, which doesn't help because that dialogue doesn't work well when said aloud. Mm -hmm. So it didn't land very well. I feel like it would have been better had it been. And also, like, they tried to cover every bit that happens in the book in two hours. And so it's crammed and fast paced when it shouldn't be. And then they change the order of events in a way that I don't like. Like they change it so that when Tate leaves and breaks up with her is when she decides, like before that even happens, is when he tells her about publishing her stuff. And then she holds on to that and waits and then dates Chase. And then while she's dating Chase, learns that she needs to buy the property to her house so that it can stay. And then after she breaks up with Chase, then sends her stuff out to get a book. I liked it better where she was so enamored in these relationships that she was just spending all her time working on her hobbies and being in these relationships that she wasn't independent in that sense, that she was just taking care of herself, but day to day more or less, and then waiting for the people to, in her lives to come back and still be a part of her. And then she learns her lesson and decides to finally take control of her, her destiny and be more in control of the situation she's in and try to work her way out of it as best she can. 
and learn from those lessons afterward and then send out the the publications and stuff and all that. Right. I feel like yeah. that works better in the book. That whole that whole reworking of it did not sit well with me. <laughs> I thought that was okay. I didn't care too much. I did think that they should just let out the plot of her like buying back the deed. Like I I, I can yeah. understand the intention of it and against her like literally claiming her own land and being independent and whatnot. But it felt just unnecessary in the in the movie version of it. Like it felt yeah. like this weird side quest that yeah. we didn't really need to go on and it was obvious they how it was gonna play didn't, out. Yeah, they didn't hammer home the point that the marsh was being urbanized as well as the book did, I think. Like the book didn't do it too much, but there were definitely points where like they were time jumping after she broke up with Chase quite a bit, like years amounts of time. And in that time jumping were a lot of descriptions of how they were ripping up the marshes and tearing it down and stuff, and that that impacted her decision to buy her land so she could preserve part of the marsh and also so that they couldn't tear her away from her home. Like, I thought it worked pretty well in the book, and I thought it would have looked really cool in the movie to have bits where she's seeing, like, construction work tearing down her beloved marsh, and so she's impacted and wants to go and make money so that she can afford to live in her home and protect the marsh so that she can give back. I thought that that would have been neat, but they didn't right. do that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, as you said, it was kind of grueling in a lot of ways. Yeah. It was very slow at times and just like plodding along. But then at other times, again, it was, as you said, it rushed. It like could It was just pure plot and no character development at certain points. So they were just right. like throwing information at you that you don't even need. It was just like, exactly. what are you doing? Yeah. The, what are you doing? And there was a lot of, just from the filmmaking aspect, which guys making films, it's hard. We know for sure. Yeah, but absolutely. this was a fairly like mid-budgeted movie, like 23 million or something like that. So I don't feel as bad pointing out a lot of the mistakes no, of that were not. in here, but especially in the beginning, like there was just so many poorly constructed, poorly edited scenes like the, which, so you should have feelings of like terror and fear and anxiety when you see the whole stuff go down with Pa, the father slapping Kaya and then going and attacking the, um, the wife as well, Kaya's mother. Yeah. But it was just so poorly done. It was like there was no tension. Sketch. It didn't seem. Yeah, there was no tension involved at all. It was more cringe-inducing because of like the filmmaking aspects than what was going on within the content of the scene. The and that applied for like so many of the scenes. Like when Tate was leaving Kaya, did you feel anything at that? Like my I my eyes glazed over and I just wasn't even listening to some of the words because it was just like it just felt so by the numbers. Yeah, there's no emotion involved in it. I hadn't connected to the characters at all. There it's was like it was no romantic rush. chemistry between them either. The the stuff with uh, like burning the letter at a different point when again Kaya was a child that also didn't work. I didn't think just because he's like trying to burn it, but the letter's not burning that fast. They should have just had it in a different thing where like he throws in the furnace or whatnot mm -hmm. instead of how it played out. And she's like jumping up at it again. It felt like the tones just weren't hitting with what they were intending. Um, other things like the detectives when they were exploring the shack in the very beginning, instead of us going into the porch alongside them and panning around and seeing all of these amazing artworks and the shells that are collected and whatnot, we just immediately cut to them inside of it. And the guy goes, wow, look at all these shells. That's incredible. Yep. 
that's supposed to be like our introduction into this marsh girl like not even the character of kaya but the persona that she has yep. and it just entirely skips over that and we get no real feeling out of it yep. it's just so much of it is poorly done and i don't understand it yeah let's also talk about one thing that made us laugh quite a bit was chase and kaya when they went to Asheville or whatever it was mm-hmm. um, oh my god dude <laughs> And they go to bed together. Talk about a poorly edited scene. <laughs> he goes, let me describe this for you, audience. If you haven't seen the movie and don't care to watch it, what happens is they go into their hotel room and they, they you know, start to do foreplay, which is, you know, it's what you do when you walk into a hotel with a loved one. And it's going great. And they haven't had sex until this point. And Kaya's still a virgin at this point. And Chase is pushing for her to have sex because he wants to have sex with her. And she finally consents. So they go to have sex. Now, picture this. Oh, it's a, a <laughs> fairly wide shot that's kind of an over-the-shoulder on uh, Chase as he's atop Kaya, and it stays on one shot. Now, most of the time when you do a sex scene, you're going to want to cut around to give the illusion of time passing. But in this sex scene, they kept it one shot. So we see Chase entering the bed and climbing on top of her and then we see chase thrusting and having sex with her and then five seconds later he's done five seconds guys i counted <laughs> on my fingers one was a good two and we three, looked at our our wrist four. i said what, wrist the f- what the fuck <laughs> five seconds they didn't even try to hide it they didn't try to cut around they didn't try to do a fade or anything they didn't try to cut to the curtains and then cut back to them having sex and having finished. They did no attempt to do any kind of transition. He had sex with her for five seconds. Canonically. And yeah, then came. Seconds. <laughs> I like it's unfathomable. He's, it's he's weird. the quarterback. Because this is supposed to be, which I guess not in this scene. I don't know if they wanted people to be like hot and bothered by it, but I mean, this does lean towards like being more of a romance film and whatnot. Um, so you would think like this is supposed to be something where it's arousing in some way or again like giving some of those feelings but the only thing you're left with is just laughing at the fact that it it was five seconds and again it's it was just why why did they decide to do it that way because we get nothing other than just bafflement of there could have been so many better ways they could have done a lot of quick cuts between him thrusting and then cuts to her face showing that she's clearly uncomfortable and not enjoying it and they could have done those and like intensely like ramped it up and ramped it up and ramped it up and then finally he comes and then you can get the impression of like oh he probably wasn't actually doing it for 10 seconds even though the the scene only lasted 10 seconds but because they cut but you know so you get the impression that a He's not very good at sex. B, she didn't enjoy it and is probably in pain. And C, he's not a loser who comes in five seconds. Like, <laughs> what is going on here? How is he the quarterback? How is this not a weapon that she uses? How does she not go into town and be like, oh, well, when I had sex with him, he came in five seconds. Why does she not use that information against him? Why does she kill him? Why didn't she just emotion, like, embarrass him, like, kill his social status? Ah. <laughs> Just a bad, bad, poorly shot, poorly played out. Could you imagine the, them going and being, okay, so you're going to go on top, like like talking to the actors and be like, okay, you're going to go on top. You're going to do, you know, the fake thrusting and all that. And then after a little while, just sort of fall over, you know, you're done. And then we'll do a couple other shots and then we'll cut around them and it'll look like a whole sex scene. And then mm-hmm. they only choose 
the one take where you're thrusting for five seconds and then fall over. Imagine being that actor. I would be upset. I'd be like, come on, guys. I see. I think you're overlooking. This is just representation for premature ejaculators out there. (laughs) They wanted to, you know, show that representation on screen. Shout out to those poor guys who have the quick cummies. (laughs) Exactly. Those poor Um, fools. So, yeah, that was... That was quite a thing. Um, the other point in the, the film I just want to bring up real quick is that idea, again, of her like being mad at the town for thinking that she's the killer. And I think what they bring up about like, oh, them being prejudiced against her as she was growing up, like we see her getting bullied as a kid when she goes for that one day. Like certainly, yeah, that's awful stuff. Good that they showed it in the ways that they did. Mm-hmm. But then when she's in jail and again, she's saying, oh, they're not judging me. They're judging themselves. Again, implying that if they found her guilty, they're just acting on their prejudice and whatnot. It's, again, it rings false to me. It's like, why are you framing it in that way? She knows we she did indeed it. indeed the killer. Yeah, she knows she did it. You're doing this just to, like, comment on, again, like the discrimination and prejudice that she faced and being an outsider and whatnot. But that doesn't work if she actually did it and if they would actually be right in thinking that she's a killer. And you can she also... <laughs> have like maybe they did think that in some way like when she was a kid and they were unfair to her in many ways sure but then if they're also actually presented like the evidence of the case and think oh she did it which she did then i don't know why they're framing as like ah ha see they're bad they're judgmental this whole time she said i did such a good murder that if they (laughs) found me guilty it'd be because they're they're prejudiced against me not because i'm the killer my right. murder was so good that they have to hate me to find me guilty. Yeah. Just Get the fuck out of here. You're a killer. You're a murderer. Just bloody strange. All right. So to wrap up, what were your favorite scenes in the book and in the film? And then any other final thoughts? My favorite scene in the book by far was when Jody comes back and he's showing her the paintings that their mother did. I felt like that really worked well and I, I I could picture it very vividly and I thought it would look really good in the movie and then they didn't fucking do it and I was pissed. But like, I really like the, the idea that like this mother that hadn't seen them in so long, who had a complete mental breakdown can still remember the good parts of their, it's like blocking out the traumatic memories and, and remembering the good memories of her family and painting them and like trying to remember them for that before she dies. I thought that was beautiful. And then like them hanging them on the walls. I thought that was beautiful. And like trying to reconnect to that family. Mm-hmm. And then I also liked in the book, Jumpin, I, I, I kind of make the argument that Jumpin's probably my favorite character, even though he is certainly a stereotype, which is awful. I still feel like the idea of his character being that father figure really works for me. And so when she goes to get the bus schedules and she and he like tells her to come back and visit and like he said, like, you're my daughter. And then she and then she says, and you've been my pa. And then she hugs like. I started to get a little teary eyed. Like that was actually very well done. I, I liked it. That to me in the book didn't ring, uh, didn't come across as well. Just because I don't know, she never really treated him like a paw. So like there was those whole stretch of years after Tate left that she again receded into just being herself and only being with herself. That she like wait would is be that very way? short. Wait wait wait. I might be misremembering. I don't think that's when she says she says that at the funeral when she sees Mabel. Mabel says you were like his daughter, and she says he was my paw. I don't remember, but I think that might have been it. And I really liked that moment. That's the part that made me teary eyed. Right. 
I'm just I saying so. I would have liked more of like their actual. I'm actually gonna. I'm gonna grab the book to go. I gotta. I gotta. I gotta remember correctly. Anyway, just to point out what I was saying, I think I would have liked had they le leaned into that subplot more of her and him and them being like these surrogate figures for each other. I would like that more. I can certainly see how he came across um, or how he saw her as that daughter figure. Uh, but I don't really feel that we got enough of him being the father figure to her for that like statement to really land emotionally. But to your other point about the like painting thing, I do think that was another strength of the film or the book rather was creating that connection between the mother walking out and then all the resentment and confusion and misunderstanding that Kaya had towards her of like, how could you possibly do that? And then when the whole situation with Chase happens, she's mm -hmm. able to acknowledge, oh, now I understand why she had to leave because mm. just being in a house like that perpetually being preyed upon yeah. and being victimized in that way it just drives you insane and it's horrible and so she had to get out and so that's like partially the motivation as well of kaya being like i will not be in that situation anymore i'm going to take care of this and remove that threat that predator who's trying to take me down and that's why she goes and does the the killings so i do think the way that they were able to tie that together of kaya finally understanding her mother and sort of extending that like sense of forgiveness towards her. Mm. Um, I thought that was really well done. Yeah. I found the scene. It goes like this. It, it is indeed the funeral scene. Standing on the porch, Mabel rushed to Kaya. They hugged, rocking back and forth, crying. Lord, he <laughs> loved you like his own daughter, Mabel said. I know, Kaya said, and he was my pa. That actually did make me, uh, make me cry a little bit. I liked it. Because then that goes into her going on the beach and saying farewell to jump in in her own words. And then that transitions into her saying goodbye to her mother in her own terms, where she sees her mother. And instead of just walking away, her mother turns around and waves and then leaves. And so she's able to finally say goodbye mm -hmm. at the same time. So she's saying goodbye to her mother figure, her mom and her father figure jumping at the same time. I thought that was well done. And it did make me tear up a little bit in the book. Yeah. In the movie, it's just kind of like a... Oh no, Jevin's dead. And also she's at the funeral in the book or in the movie. In the book, she doesn't go to the funeral. In that's the book, true. she never goes back to town again. And Which that's not that's not true in the in the movie. Yeah, I thought it just wouldn't make sense for that to be the case of not going back in town. I guess I mean she I can had see Tate it happen because Tate goes, goes there. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know, she becomes the Marsh girl and then it's on her epitaph, which I also thought was nice. My yeah. favorite scene in the movie though was the one where she comes back to Tate and they're talking. And he asked her if she wants to marry him. And then she says, but we're married like the geese. And then he says, honk. <laughs> that was the best part of the theater going experience. Was you saying that again, it's supposed to be like this tender moment. Finally, they're getting back together. It's amazing. <laughs> and you lean over to me and go, what have you just said? Honk. <laughs> it just, it's already been so cheesy up until this point. They should have just leaned all the way in and made me laugh at the least in the last second. It would have been worth the entire movie. The whole movie would have been completely worth it for that one joke of him going, honk. Yeah. That it would have been so good. That was my favorite part. <laughs> was you saying that to me. That was great. That and when <laughs> when you were like, so did she do it? And I had to let you know it was actually the lawyer who did it. Which that was weird as well that they made the change of the lawyer 
he was like the one guy in the town that was nice to Kai when she was a kid. Yeah, he Wasn't got a much beefier role in the movie, which I don't know if I like that. But I thought that would have been funny as well. That would have been a crazy twist. It was the lawyer that killed Chase. Yeah, that would have been a twist. And then it would have been the debate of like, oh, was it was it a good idea? He got away with it. Huh, interesting. There wouldn't have been that whole moral dilemma of like, why is she taking the high ground when she's clearly right. the killer? Yeah, that would at least make it, and again, the whole stuff of like the town turning on her and whatnot would come across a lot better of Kaya being like, wow, even in his death, like I'm still getting victimized by this horrible person because everyone's blaming me for something I actually didn't do. But, but when then she you did actually do it, she knew it. that she did it. And she's making these comments, like these snide remarks about the town. It just, I don't know, it feels weird to do that. It would have been even funnier if Tate was like, I can't believe they still hate you. And then she was just like, I get it. <laughs> well, you know, I probably would do. I, just, I understand. I, I would hate me too. Yeah, I understand now. It makes sense. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, oh, just to give my favorite thing from the book was when they were. It was like the mom and then all the her female kids were in the boat, mm-hmm. and they were putting the toenail polish or whatever and whatnot. And I thought that was a really sweet moment. Uh, and they sort of did something like that in the movie, but not at all quite as well. Like that was cool to have. Like Kaya and her sisters and then her mother. And then they're all in the boat having a good time together. Like with yeah. a few moments where they're away from Pa. And so they don't have to worry about him. And they're just mm-hmm. able to connect with each other. I thought that was cool. And I thought it did connect well with this other idea that he somewhat explored. But, you know, where she would see the the girls in town, like that little friend group. And she would want to have connections with them. Um, because she knows she's like reading nature stuff. And like the importance of like same-sex companionship. In, in the book and the movie, we never really get that other than her and, I guess, Mabel, Jumpin's wife. Um, but certainly no one of her own age that's also a woman does she have mm-hmm. any connection with. So I wish they would have, I know, maybe expanded more on that because um, that was a cool idea they proposed in that book. But they just didn't expand on it. And then in the movie, the favorite scene was when the snow egrets were flying in. I thought that was cool. And then they immediately mess it up by having them munch on each other's face and then try to go and get it on by the river. I was like, okay, you see all these geese coming down. They're still like coming down and then they're bored with that and then start kissing. I'm like, okay, you didn't want to watch all of them come in. But I thought that was cool visually. All right. So our rating out of five marshy Sunday justices, what are you giving it? The book or the movie? The movie. Give it a two and a half. Two and a half. That's pretty generous. You're right. I'll give it a two. <laughs> you convinced me. I'll give it a two. <laughs> Good. We had to bring it down. Keep them humble. I don't know. I was honestly going between a 1.5 and a two for this. I'm going to give it a two because I laughed a couple of times at the stupidity of it. It was well, bad. Yeah, enough where I, enjoyed, yeah. I had fun laughing at some parts, but then the other parts were so bad that I couldn't enjoy it at all. Yeah. The experience of it maybe brings it up to a two, but I think the film itself, I don't know. It is pretty bad. I'm going to give it a 1.5, I think. All right. What would you rate the book, though, as Um, a book critic? I don't know. I'm much more well-refined with my rating system in terms of films and in books. So I don't know what I could give it. Where would you give it? I think I'd give it a three and a half. I don't think it's the the best book I've ever read, but I think it definitely had a lot of gaping plot holes. But I feel like there was enough better smaller storylines that got cut from the movie that i think worked and i wish they hadn't gotten cut and i feel like the descriptions 
were really well done and i feel like the dialogue was at least semi-forgivable in the book so it, it definitely worked better than the movie so i'll give it a three i agree for sure yeah the book definitely worked better than the film still don't um, like that overall le- ending lesson though doesn't does not land murder's good again i don't think they say murder's good yeah, but I mean, that's you can the see it, it definitely she like she had a more positive life. With no consequences and then stands on the high ground and says this is what they get for treating me like this <laughs> that part yeah i agree the high ground part and again not ever telling tate that's again just seems like a weird decision but also, again i mean if they, being a secret poet the whole time <laughs> unforgivable how could they let that happen? horrible person for being a secret poet <laughs> um yeah i don't know i guess i'd give it a 3.5 but again, it's not nice. as uh, firm, I would say, as my film rankings. Or it's no Jurassic movie. Park book or <laughs> movie. For sure. Okay. So to part with, what is one book and one adaptation of that book that you would recommend? I mean, honestly, Jurassic Park, I kind of nailed <laughs> it. I mean, it's just so well adapted. Other than that, if you really want to have a very interesting treat i would recommend going to read the last picture show and then watch the movie because i have never once because i saw the movie first and then i read the book and never once did i have the experience where i was reading that book having already seen the movie and everything lined up one to one like it was maybe two scenes got cut out overall but the book and the movie are almost identical not only in terms of what happens but the feeling it gives too like they match the feeling of the book in the movie perfectly well and that's a very weird thing to interact with. And they're both great, too. Like, the book is really good and the movie's really good. So I recommend, if you're going to do anything, The Last Picture Show is what you should do. Nice. I would you, say Ryan? One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Just because there's a very interesting oops, uh, experiment in the book being from a point of view, the narrative point of view of an entirely different character than what the book, or than what the film, rather, goes with. Yeah, that because is an interesting shift. Yeah, so and I, it works well because both of them I think are really, really well done. Mm-hmm. Of course, in the books you get to see a lot more of like the mental illness playing out. Um, so a lot of very interesting description going on there. And then the film, of course, Jack Nicholson embodying that character extremely well. Oh yeah, performances and the oh, yeah. base story of it and the theme of it, um, and rising against the oppressive authority. I think it's it all lands really well in both mediums. So yeah. one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Check that out. For sure. All right, that's all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show or make a suggestion for the movie of the week, you can email us at theboxofficeshowpod at gmail.com. Our main title theme is Sundown by Joseph McDade. Be sure to tune in next week. Have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>